I want to begin today with a touch of humor. But I think it points to a very real concern. I saw this cartoon. And I don't know if from where you are sitting, you can see exactly what it is, but it's obviously a rendition of the pearly gates uh, of heaven. And uh, a gentleman there in front of the pearly gates. It happens to be an older man in a white suit with a white goatee. And there's a big chicken there, and there's more chickens and feathers and wings. And his words are, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Now here's my question. How does your image of the pearly gates? How does your understanding of life after death how do your views of the way which things will take place after we die, how do those affect the way in which you are living? You see, the nature of the reality of life after, after death in the world to come is difficult to describe in language that's so tied to our, our present physical world. In fact, it's even difficult to think about it. Eternal life? I mean, everything we think about is locked in time. Yesterday, last year, today, next month. Have you ever stopped for a moment to think about how life in the world to come is not tied to this chronological time-based uh, dimension? I mean, time as we know it is just a measurement. It's a measurement of the movement of our planet around the sun, a year. A measurement of the rotation of our planet on its axis, a 24-hour day. Time is just a measurement. The psalmist deals with the issue by saying words we're familiar with for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Psalm 90 verse 4. The Apostle Peter writes, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Here's the problem. The reality of the event, that is, the return of the Lord, according to what the Bible affirms, is inescapable. But the exact nature of the event is uncertain. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says that one problem that we have in this present day is that we have allowed our beliefs about life after death to be heavily influenced by the ancient and influential philosopher Plato. He taught that all physical things, all matter is evil. And because of that, he believed that the only things that were good had to be spiritual. Therefore, 
The soul needs to be separated from anything material, even from the body. So, instead of realizing that the ultimate destiny of redeemed humanity is resurrection and reconciled life on the new earth, which God promised to establish at the end of the age, we've settled for a platonic understanding of a final disembodied state in which the soul somehow escapes the body and we all go to heaven when we die. And the tragedy is that not only is that not biblical, but it loses the beauty of the fullness of the new creation. Read with me and listen to a bit of what John the Apostle tells us in the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Come on. There we go. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. You saw it. You read it. Does John say we are going to heaven? Or does John say heaven is coming to us? Does John say we are going to be with God? Or does John say God is coming to dwell with us? It says the old heaven and the old earth are done away with and the new are being created and God's coming to dwell with us. Listen to me. The cross and Jesus' own bodily resurrection remind us of the importance of resurrection bodies. Not souls. As our own ultimate destiny. When Jesus returned in the resurrection body, He said what? To Thomas. Here are my hands. Here's my side. On the beach when they were fishing, what did He do? He prepared food and it says He ate with them. Now, do I totally understand that? Absolutely not. Because that same Jesus in that same resurrection body could appear through closed doors and locked doors. He could be at one point in Jerusalem in the upper room and shortly thereafter in Galilee, literally miles and miles away. But the fact is, is that we need to understand that somehow there will be a bodily resurrection. Not just a bunch of ephemeral ghosts flying around in the clouds. That image is not biblical. 
So the major topic of Paul's letter to these Christians, and therefore the major deficit in their faith, is that they needed a more complete understanding of the coming of Jesus in His great victory to fulfill His promises. And what is really special about this passage in Thessalonians is that it's one of the earliest New Testament records of Jesus' coming. And it contains Jesus' own words concerning that event. Now, there are two particular problems that you and I have that complicate our present understanding of this passage that we're going to be looking at. For one thing, Paul's obviously responding to some kind of a problem that was going on right there at the church in Thessalonica. And we don't know what that problem is. So we have to kind of figure out what the problem is from the answer. And that that makes it harder to understand exactly what Paul is emphasizing. But there's a second problem. And that, that is that Paul uses apocalyptic language which cannot always be understood literally. There's little doubt that Paul's describing an event that he believes will take place in space and time. A real event. But it's also clear that his purpose is not to give the exact and complete chronology of the event. The apocalyptic apocalyptic language that he uses supports that understanding of this passage. For example... We're going to read that Jesus is coming, is going to be attended by a loud command, the voice of the archangel, and a trumpet call. Now, these three may very well be one great symbolic act. Apocalyptic literature, such as Revelation, refers to a trumpet-sounding shouts that precede God's judgment. And you can see that in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 and Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. Furthermore, a trumpet blast is frequently associated with God's ultimate judgment. Isaiah 27, Joel chapter 2, Zephaniah chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 9, and even Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. So the point is that those who have fallen asleep, the ones who have already died, will meet Jesus before those who are alive at His coming. However, both groups will then be together and be in equal relationship to Jesus. And the conclusion of the matter and the ultimate purpose for this discussion that Paul is entering into is to comfort and encourage Verse four, chapter 4 verse 18 that we're going to read says, Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So let me once again affirm the reality of the event. That is, the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, is affirmed. It's inescapable. But the exact nature of the event is uncertain. And it seems that a part of the problem Paul is addressing is that some of these Thessalonians had understood that all who believed would see the return of Jesus. Their image of the pearly gates, what would take place on the day of judgment, had indeed affected the way in which they were living. And so they looked to Paul for an answer. 
They were not different from us. We and our neighbors wrestle with the basic questions of life. Where did we come from? How do we understand the beginning of all things? What will happen when I die? Where am I heading? How is all of this going to end? And so their need, which I believe is also our need, is to come to a correct understanding of the foundation on which our hope and therefore our salvation is based. Cindy played the song during the communion time. Uh, and this, these are those God things. Because I already had it in my notes to mention it. And Cindy played it. We sing the song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. But is that really what we believe? I hear a lot of Christians begin sentences with the words, Well, I really hope that such and such is going to take place. Paul's going to begin our text today with two very foundational beliefs. He writes, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. This is the first part. It's the first part of what's known as, in fact, a conditional sentence. The way the sentence in Paul is constructed, this is assumed. The hearers would have assumed from Paul that Jesus died and rose again. That's why it's translated, since we believe. It's an irreducible core of the good news, the gospel. The gospel that the apostles preached and which the church believed. And they were living in a time when there were people who were living who would have been alive when Jesus died and was crucified and when the empty tomb was there. And that's why they believed because of the historical not scientific, but the historical proof of the empty tomb. It's not science's place to determine whether or not the tomb could be empty. Do you understand that? I'm talking from the philosophy of science. The philosophy of science is that it studies those things which are repeatable. Okay? Not things that happen once in time. Things that you can take and write your notes as to how you do your experiment. Somebody can take your notes as to how you did your experiments, do them again, and get the same results. That's the philosophy of science. And there is no scientific proof for the resurrection of Jesus. But there is more historical proof for the empty tomb than many other things that we take for granted. For instance, I already quoted Plato, or mentioned Plato, Socrates. We have more historical proof for the empty tomb than we do for the existence and life of, of Plato and Socrates. J. M. D. Anderson 
a world-renowned legal scholar, wrote a book called Christianity, The Witness of History. Listen to what he says. The evidence for the historical basis of the Christian faith, for the essential validity of the New Testament witness to the person and teaching of Christ Himself, for the fact and significance of His atoning death, and for the historicity of the empty tomb and the apostolic testimony to the resurrection is such as to provide an adequate foundation for the venture of faith. A world-renowned legal scholar. But notice again, he said historical, historicity, not scientific. And so Paul continues, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this, is, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. The Christian view of death and life after death does not rest upon the flimsy framework of any philosophical speculation. It's not just about some gut feeling, but it is a foundational belief in that Jesus defeated death. And since Jesus defeated death, then we too, those who accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, will be victorious over death as well. But herein, again, is a part of the problem. However firm our Christian faith may be, the loss of a close relative or a friend causes profound emotional shock. To lose a loved one is to lose a part of oneself. It calls for radical and painful adjustments, which may take months. Never, let me repeat, never try to short-circuit the grief process. Dr. Leighton Ford, Canadian evangelist and mission leader, put it well when his elder son Sandy died back in 1982. Only 21 years of age. Here's what he said. The struggle is to bring our faith and our emotions together. He has a book called Sandy, A Heart for God that he published in 1985. It's a moving account of what very honestly is his confrontation with the death of his son. And he talks about especially the combination of tears, questions, and silence. For in the words of Dr. Ford, when you love deeply, you hurt deeply. Now as we can begin to dig into our text today, there are three areas from our text that I want to visit briefly with you. First, the relationship between hope and grief. Then the relationship between hope and being children of the light. And finally, uh, that to help us be victorious, we've been given an armor that includes the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So let's go to God's Word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, 
that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Then we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The first thing I think that we need to take notice of is that Paul does not forbid us to grieve. Mourning is natural. Even for a while, emotionally necessary. It's not natural. Indeed, it borders on being inhumane not to mourn when we lose somebody near and dear to us. However, it's also appropriate at Christian funerals to joyfully celebrate Christ's decisive victory over death. Leon Apple minister of the Lincoln Christian Church and one-time short-term president at Lincoln Christian College, wrote out his complete funeral service before he died and let his family know where it was. It was a celebration of thanksgiving and praise and the words he chose were Paul's in Philippians, rejoice, again I say rejoice. What Paul prohibits is not grief, but it's hopeless grief. You see, not all mourning, but mourning like the rest of men who have no hope. That is, like the pagans of his day. Those who are not Christian, who lack the knowledge of life after death, cannot possibly be graced with the Christian understanding of the word hope. Which for us means a joyful and confident expectation of eternal life through Jesus Christ. We grieve the temporary, earthly loss, but not the eternal separation. In antiquity, in the face of death, there was neither joy nor triumph nor celebration nor actually any defiant challenge like Paul's words when Paul said, Oh death, where is your victory? Instead, there was a general hopelessness. F.F. F. Bruce, uh, again a New Testament scholar, just, just quotes Theocrates, one of the first century historians, as writing, Hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope. That's not what we believe as Christians though. And so Paul's introduction to his answer to the, to the Thessalonians' question regarding the circumstances of those who have already died was that he wanted them to neither be ignorant about the facts of Christian death nor to grieve over those who were dead in hopelessness. Indeed, he saw these two things as closely related. Sub-Christian mourning, the wailing of some that some of us have experienced, I'll never forget standing there in the room of when my grandmother died, seeing my aunt and a few of my cousins 
just wailing and falling around. And I was only a teenager, and I said to my dad, you think this is legit? Do you think they're putting on a show? He said, no, they're not putting on a show. It's they don't have any hope of seeing your grandmother again like we do. And they feel guilty about the way they have treated her knowing that she was a faithful, obedient Christian. When at times they would make fun of her going out in bad weather so that she could go to church. Only a correct knowledge, only a correct understanding of what happens to us when we die can inspire true Christian hope. Hope doesn't alleviate, but it lessens the grief that we experience. But secondly, Paul continues directing our thoughts to the relationship between hope and being children of the light. Let's read on. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will become, come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they'll not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Paul's discussion of Christ's return now shifts from correcting their specific point of misunderstanding to a more general reminder of and exhortation about its significance. And he does it with an obvious change of subject. My Wednesday night Bible studiers, Perry Day. Now concerning. But now concerning. And two key concepts stand in dynamic tension throughout the New Testament regarding the return of the Lord. The first is the possibility that Christ could return at any time when they least expected it as a thief in the night. And secondly, the prospect is that His return will take longer than His people might expect, causing a loss of hope. And it's precisely because of both sides of that teaching that Paul makes this exhortation at this point, based on Jesus' own instruction for enduring faithfulness and watchfulness. The Lord indeed will come back. And He could do so at any moment. In fact, I don't know if you believe this, but He could come right now. His return has nothing, nothing to do with things going on in world history. His return has nothing to do with the current state of affairs regarding the nation of Israel. That is false teaching. And that's why we, as His followers, must live with the expectation of His return and reflect that in our behavior. I think sometimes some of us don't behave the way we know we should behave because we don't think Christ is going to return and before He does, oh, we can get everything back in order and we'll say we're sorry and everything will be okay. 
But, God forbid, what happens if when I walk out this door this afternoon, I trip and fall and fall down the concrete steps and hit my head and die? When is the return of the Lord for me? Today, when that happens. We have to live with that expectation. Just like we would live with uh, having the house clean when the parents return after they've been gone all day. Or husbands uh, having the house clean before our wife gets back uh, after she's been gone for the day. Uh, oh, I better get those dishes done and not leave them in the sink for her. But because he may not come back immediately, we also need to be encouraging each other to remain faithful. Did you notice that Paul begins verse 4 with an emphatic pronoun? You! You who are Christians. You who are prepared. You Thessalonian, those are from Thessalonica, you Thessalonians, uh, you know better. Be ready. Be watching. And help those who are in the darkness because you're in the light. And the light had to do with living in knowledge of God because God is light. That's what John says in 1 John. And in Him there is no darkness. And so, the dawning of the day, it's not a catastrophe for us, but a blessing. My wife and I often pray, Lord Jesus, come! The point is not that the day of the Lord is no surprise. Because the readers don't know when it will come. And that's a consistent teaching of the New Testament. If you read something where somebody says, because of this and this and this, the Lord's going to return on this day, throw that book in the fire. Because it's heresy. And what it'll do is it'll get you to start thinking in terms of what else is false teaching and that is the idea that there's going to be a rapture and some of us are going to be called up and others are going to be left behind. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when He comes, the ones who are going to be taken first and bundled and thrown into the fire are not the Christians, but the weeds, the tares. I want to be left behind. Because those are the Christians, not the weeds and the tares. The rapture didn't even come into existence until the early 1800s. Don't, don't get carried down that wrong road. And Paul will draw the exhortation from this teaching as the main thrust of his discussion that as God's people, you and I, need to be belonging to the light. Belonging to God's truth. Not losing heart. Not grieving as those who don't have hope. Because the truth sets us free. We don't have to be afraid. I said to Kay this week, I wish people who thought my job was easy would just spend one week with me. One week. 
sitting beside the bed and holding the hand of somebody who said, I'm ready. I'm ready to go home. I know where I'm going. I'm ready to go home. Knowing that death is imminent. I, I actually didn't think that I would have gone these many days without receiving the call. But we have AIDS. We have AIDS to help us in this quest. The assurance of our salvation. So then, again, by the way, it's Perry Day. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night in the darkness. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night in the darkness. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, <coughs> encourage one another and build, build one another up just as you are doing. As in both Romans 13 and Ephesians 6, Paul compares the provision for the Christian to armor. And in common with the Ephesian passage, he elaborates by discussing specific pieces of armor. But his point is not so much the identification of each specific part with specific ideas as it is on the concept that God has equipped the Christian with all that is needed for the battle with evil. And in this text, even the idea of the battle is not directly stated. So in light of the preceding context, it's clear that Paul implies that the readers and you and I will and must continue to struggle against the non-Christian culture that's around us. We're in a war. We're in a battle for our children. I would not want to teach in the public school systems right now as I did in the 90's. Because I would not want my hands tied the way that they are even more so now than they were then. We're worried about what's going on in the schools. What could we expect when we did everything to take God out of the schools? As Paul highlights God's provision in terms of the three cardinal virtues that we've talked about. Faith, love, and hope. Climaxing with hope as the apex, the helmet of the image. Paul, Paul's comparison uh, to the breastplate, to faith and love, it's, it's different from what he read in Ephesians 6, which alludes precisely to Isaiah 59, where righteousness is the breastplate. Here the breastplate is faith and love. And his phrase, hope of salvation, is a bit ambiguous. It can mean either the hope that comes from salvation or the hope that looks forward to salvation. But in the context, I think it refers to the fact of hoping for our salvation ahead and not 
which is a misuse in our common day, not a chance of being saved, but a confident expectation of being saved. And so Paul's point, taking us back to our opening discussion the last two Sundays, is that by practicing faith, having a faith that functions, not just something between your ears, a faith that functions, a love that labors, and a hope that endures, the readers and you and I can both know we are saved and overcome the pressures of our environment to conform to their standards, thereby proving our faithfulness to the Lord who returns for our salvation. So here's my challenge in closing. You and I need to be living with hope in such a way that we can encourage and build one another up. In chapter 4, verse 18, Paul concludes the discussion by reminding the readers to recognize the value of the message as a source of encouragement. 4.18 and here in 5 and 11, in both cases, Paul uses a word that sounds very similar to the one Christ used for the Holy Spirit. That word was paraclete. He used the word paracolao, encouragement. 4.18, it was a noun. Here, it's a verb. We need to be giving and enabling and motivating our brothers and sisters in Christ to build up resistance to temptation. To build up one another implies that by practicing and encouraging watchfulness, the Thessalonian Christians will move closer into conformity with God's intention for them, having a faith that functions, a love that labors, and a hope that results in endurance. Let's pray. Father God, help us now to come to a point of commitment to realize that we need to be living every day as if that thief as your son made reference, that, that unexpected visitor that will be ready. That will be ready for the return of your son. Even if it is today. And as our Bibles close, Maranatha, come. Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Our song is Only Trust Him. We'll sing two verses. Let's stand and sing.